You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right. Um, get our notes open up. A um, little bit of, of a different approach this morning in that we are not going to plow ahead into Ephesians chapter 2, even though I'm really excited about getting into chapter 2. Um, I really wanted to step back today and kind of share with you some things that God's been teaching me outside of Ephesians that tie into Ephesians. I told you that recently I've been listening to some sermons and podcasts and reading some different things that uh, God has allowed me to see that they tie into what we're studying in Ephesians, um, particularly with some uh, historical figures in God's Word um, and how they are a an example of what we're seeing these truths in Ephesians, what it looks like to have your eyes opened and, and enlightened to the truths of the gospel and to, to be called forth um, as adoptive sons and daughters. And so I want us to, to see that a little bit this morning together. I want us to see what it looks like uh, for people to be impacted by the gospel, to have their hearts enlightened, to see the, the hope of uh, their calling, to see the glorious riches of the inheritance promised, to see the power of God at work in their life. And so I want to draw your attention to some individuals this morning in God's Word that, that highlight these things. From a summary sentence standpoint, an enlightened heart sees all of life through the lens of the hope and riches promised to us by God's power. An enlightened heart, this enlightened heart that we've been talking about in the book of Ephesians, It sees all of life through the lens of the hope and riches promised to us by God's power. For our kids, the Bible helps us understand our life. If we go back to Ephesians chapter 1, where we've been for the last several weeks, just to read to you that passage, that section once again, it says, verse 18, Paul's prayer for the people at Ephesus, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So here's what I want to do for you today. I want to show you some individual characters. I want to give you a principle that I believe we see from their life. Uh, What it looks like to have an enlightened heart is to live out your life with these type of principles that are made evident in these figures' lives. These are things that God had worked and done in their heart, had brought about in their story, and it's recorded for us in God's Word. So I'm going to give you that principle, and then after we talk about each one, I'm going to give you a point of application to take with you, um, how you can take what we've learned from their story and apply it specifically to your life. The first one that we're going to look at this morning is Rahab. Rahab is a woman that we talked about recently in our D-group studies when we were working through um, the book of James, right? We were talking about faith and works and how that looks in the life of Abraham and Rahab. Rahab is, I think I've told you this before, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Um, I love her story. I love the way that God worked and moved in the circumstances surrounding her story. Um, I love how God worked and moved in spite of her background, in spite of her, her family history, right? Living in Canaan, living in Jericho, a prostitute uh, by occupation, how how God worked and moved in her life to bring her to a point of seeing things that even God's people weren't really seeing like they should. Things about who God is and what he's capable of doing. She sees that. God calls her to salvation, and she is adopted into the people of God. It's a great story. Uh, And I want to talk to you about it for a minute before I give you that point of application. Rahab is in a situation in Joshua chapter 2. So if you want to turn to Joshua chapter 2. She's living in Jericho. The time frame in Scripture is um, the people of Israel have already been set free from Egypt. God was bringing them to the promised land, gave them the ability to enter into the promised land, and they turned it down. They said, nope, we're not going. We're scared to death of the people there. We'll talk in a minute again about Caleb and the the reports that came back from those initial spies that went to look at uh, the promised land. But the children of Israel said, we're not going, right? And so... God punishes them, disciplines them by putting them in the wilderness, right? And they have to walk around for 40 years. If you read um, that initial account when those spies went to spy the land, they spied out the land for 40 days. 40 days, those spies go into the land. 
and look at and check it out and see what's going on. They come back, and God punishes them with 40 years in the wilderness, all right? The spies had checked it out. They said they weren't going to go. They were fearful. Israel was fearful, and so they, they, they chose not to enter the promised land. Now God has brought them back. Moses and Joshua have transitioned the leadership. Now Joshua is leading the children of Israel. They're approaching the promised land, ready to go in. God has assured them, I'm going to give it to you. The promised land is yours, right? My power is going to come forth, and you are going to receive this land. And it says, verse 1 of chapter 2 of Joshua, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So Joshua does something similar to what Moses did. He sends spies into the land. Now, think about what we know about this story, right? Even our kids are probably familiar with the fact that Jericho falls not because of Israel's might, right? It's not because of their army, right? It's because of God and his power. And the very first battle that the children of Israel are going to see inside the promised land, God establishes the fact that it's me giving it to you because all you're going to do is march around the walls and they're going to come, thump, they're going to come tumbling down, right? They're going to fall down and I'm going to give you this city. And yet Joshua sends spies in to check it out. And so I'm reading this, thinking about this. The spies really don't have to go. They really don't have to go because a spy is typically sent in to help develop a strategy for how we're going to attack and how we're going to seize this. Well, God doesn't need that information. God already has it. And God already knows what the strategy is going to be, right? He's going to have these walls come tumbling down. And so you read this story and how it plays out, and you realize that the only reason this is necessary is ultimately for the rescue of Rahab. This is all about Rahab and her rescue and these spies being sent in there right, to identify her, to connect with her so that she can be brought to salvation. It's, it's less about war and more about rescue. And I can't help but think, who was Rahab 40 years prior to this? Right? Have you ever thought about that? Like when the spies show up, and we're going to read this in just a minute, when the spies show up, Rahab's like, man, we know a lot about you, right? Like we're scared to death of you. And she starts to spout off Israelite history. We know your God did this for you. We know your God did this for you. It's having this type of impact on us as a whole, particularly me as an individual. It's impacting me this way, right? But who was she 40 years ago? Who was she prior to Joshua and these spies showing up now? Was she even ready to be saved? Was, was God at work in her heart yet? Like I, I love what we're learning in Ephesians about how God is, chosen things and predestined things, and he's at work in things. It's all about his will and all about his purposes, right? And we see the failure of Israel to go into the promised land, but even in the midst of that, we see God had purposes and plans for how he was going to use their disobedience and rebellion. It was ultimately going to lead to the salvation of Rahab, who is impacted by what she hears about Israel. Think about, too, how God directs these two spies to find the right prostitute that he had brought to spiritual life, right? This, this wasn't an a uncommon thing for cities to be surrounded at the outer edge of the city to have prostitutes who would welcome visitors to the city, right? And they would be very aware of the news and notes of the land, things that were happening because they would hear it from these travelers that would come stay in the city. These two spies could have ended up in any prostitute's house or any hotel that night, right? And God directs them specifically to Rahab. Why? Because God has a purpose for it. You're not, this, you're not just there to find out about the land. You're not just there to find out about this city. You are there to bring this individual through the spoken word. You're there to help save this individual, somebody that God had already been working on in her heart. Joshua chapter 2, he sends the spies. They come in, and it says that they went and came into the house. Verse, uh, still in verse 1. They went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Right? Then we'll skip down to verse 8. Between uh, verse 2 and verse 8, the king finds out, the king sends his guards to her house, demands that she produce the spies. She says, look, the spies already left. If you hurry, you can catch up with them. The Bible says that she had hid those spies. She had intentionally protected those spies. She had spared those spies. Why? Verse 8, before the men lay down, right? And, and, and they're, not, they're probably not even gospel-minded or evangelistically-minded here, Right? They've been hidden. They've been protected. Thank you, ma'am. Where can we sleep tonight? 
right? They're ready to go to bed. They're done with spiritual conversations. They're ready to go to bed. She initiates. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we've heard how the land dried up the water of the Red Sea before you uh, when you came out of Egypt. That was 40 years ago. 40 years ago, she's referencing a story and how it's still impacting her today. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. We've heard about what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. This was a thing that had happened more recently. She says, we know what your God has been doing. Verse 11, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them. You'll deliver our lives from death. The men said to her, I lie for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Forty years of stories, she recounts to them. She says, the city's freaked out. We're freaked out over the Red Sea. Like, that doesn't make sense how that happened and you were spared from the Egyptians. We're freaked out about the fact that you guys upset Sion and Og. These are, these are guys, these are kings and kingdoms that you shouldn't have been able to beat. And she acknowledges something that ultimately Israel was really supposed to acknowledge. This superiority, this supremacy of Yahweh being the one true God. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 25, This is what God expects of his people. It says, This day I will begin to put the the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Right? He says, "I'm, I'm to be seen as the supreme God, and I'm going to show myself by putting fear into the people about the things that I'm doing. I need you to acknowledge me as the supreme God right? Because I'm going to put fear and dread into the peoples of the land. And it, and it worked because this conversation with Rahab, Rahab says, we are terrified. She says, we've heard about your God. She says, I fear your God. The difference between her and the rest of the city, though, is that she is running to this God of Israel. She doesn't flee the city. She identifies these spies and says, take me with you. Take me with you. I'm I'm trusting that what I know about your God, he's all powerful, he's over heaven and earth, right? He's the supreme being. I'm hopeful that if I come to him in faith, that he'll receive me. Man, as I was reading and studying this, I couldn't help but think about um, Hebrews chapter 11 and what we're told about our God. In verse six of Hebrews chapter 11, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I mean, that's Rahab. That's her expression of faith, right? She believes that he exists. She believes that he has all the power and she is seeking him, coming to him because, the, because God has already been working on her heart. God is bringing her and enlightening her mind, right? She comes and seeks him, hoping that he will reward her, hoping that he will spare her life. She knew what God had been doing. She knew who he was, and she also knew what he was going to do. What does she confess? She says, look, I know. I know your God's about to give you this whole land. She's like, I could run from Jericho. I could flee to the next city, but that would be pointless because your God is going to give you all of it, right? She knows what God's going to do. We've been talking about in Ephesians. Paul's like, I'm praying that you'll understand the great riches, the inheritance that's been promised to you. Here's, here's an initial f- expression of faith. This, this new believer in, in Yahweh who's, who's confessing these same things. She's already realizing these great inheritance that have been given to God's people, right? You're, you're going to be given the promised land by your God, and I want in on it. I want to be a part of this. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39. It says, know therefore today and lay it in your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. 
Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. God says, I want you guys to realize that I'm the God of heaven. I'm the God of earth. And I want you to submit to me in obedience. And Rahab's confessing this. She's confessing God's power, his might, his strength, his glory, his majesty. He's the God of the heavens and the earth. And she asks him for mercy. She's willing to abandon her way of life. <clears throat> Think about what a traitor she is to her people group, right? She's a complete traitor. She's walking away from everything she's ever known. She's giving herself to this new life, which is exactly what we're called to do, right? We're called to abandon the way of the life of this world. We're to give that up in pursuit of Christ. It's interesting. I was listening to a podcast recently where they were talking about the, the archaeology of Jericho and the expeditions that have taken place to further understand what happened to this city. I didn't realize it, um, but the podcast I was listening to talked about the, the research that had been done, that there was actually like three walls that went around Jericho. Jericho was kind of sitting up higher. There were three exterior walls that protected it. And what they can tell from archaeology is that these walls, from the secular side, for whatever reason, we know the reason that God did a miraculous work, these walls at some point in history collapsed inward and kind of uphill. So they didn't just come crashing down in, their, in, in the place where they were laying. They actually fell backwards. And right, the archaeology evidence says that like ramps were basically created so that if a people group were invading, they were basically given like a runway to the city to be able to conquer it and to take over it. And here's what's fascinating is that archaeology shows that there's a portion of the wall that didn't fall when the rest of the wall fell. And it happens to point in the direction that these spies fled, right? It's, it's Rahab's house that was spared, right? God spares her because of her expression of faith that he was working in her heart. And James chapter two, where we were studying in our D group, it talks about her faith and her works. James chapter two, <clears throat> Verse 25, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. She's not saved by her works. She's saved by her faith that expresses itself in this way, right? She believed these things about God enough to save these spies from being turned in, right? To entrust herself to this God, this Yahweh, this God of Israel, to take her and to protect her. So that principle for Rahab is that hearing God's word impacts our emotions, our belief, and our action. This is what an enlightened person looks like. It's somebody who sits under the authority of God's word, hears about God, right? Now, Rahab's not coming to Sunday morning services and hearing God's word preached, right? But she is hearing about the God of Israel. She's hearing about the acts of the God of Israel. <clears throat> and it's doing something, Right? It's impacting her because God is taking that information. He's driving it into her heart to where her emotions are being affected, right? She says, I am fearful of your God. I'm not afraid of your God to where I'm going to run from him and hide in the darkness and hide in my sin. She says, no, 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 no. I'm fearful because I know your God's going to give you this land. And the only answer is to run to him, to run to him, to run into the light because I believe him. Right? So God's word impacts her emotions, her belief, and her action. And that's Paul's prayer for all of us. Right? 2,000 years ago, he's writing, to the book of, he's writing the book of Ephesians, and he's saying for the believers, I'm praying that God's word would impact you in such a way that your, your eyes of your heart are enlightened. Right? That your emotions, your belief, and your actions would be impacted by it, just like Rahab. The application from this section we need to seek to know God more in order to have our emotions and actions shaped by our belief in him. May my prayer is that you would be driven to God's word <clears throat> so that you can know him more. Wherever you're at in your sanctification process, wherever you're at in your knowledge of who God is, whether it's shallow and initial and new for you, or whether you've been a believer for many, many years and sat under many, many sermons and know many, many things, that we would all have a commitment to know God more so that our emotions and actions can be shaped as we continue to believe in him, as our faith increases. 
Second person I want to draw your attention to is Caleb. We talked about him previously. I wanted to spend just a little bit more time talking about him this morning. Caleb, the principle from his life, past promises supersede present circumstances. The heart of the enlightened individual believes that past promises supersede present circumstances. So we back up in the history of time. Rahab is when Israel finally goes into the promised land. Caleb is the part of that group that initially came there and then turned back on it. The spies were sent to evaluate the land. Caleb was one of those. And they were told to look for certain things. The whole group was. Numbers chapter 13, if you want to turn there. Numbers chapter 13, verse 17. It says, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So Moses says to these 12 spies, 10 were bad, 2 were good. Go into the land, check it out. Look for these things, evaluate these things, and bring a report back, right? We saw a couple weeks ago the bad reports start to roll in. Verse 25, at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. They came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. They told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. The Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. And they're freaked out about what they saw. They basically come back and say, the land is awesome. And there are really strong giants there. We can't go, right? We can't go. You see further their report in um, verse 31. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out. It's a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people that we saw in it are of great height. They were, uh, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. These bad reports come in. They're like, look, we can't go. We can't do it. But then Caleb steps in and tries to, tries to quiet the people, tries to calm the people down. It says in verse 30, Caleb quieted the people from Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. In chapter 14, verse 6, he's not ready to give up. He says, um, verse 7, the land which we passed through to spy it, it's an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land. He'll give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Don't rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land. They're bred to us. And here's the key phrase that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Told you, they went into the land looking for the same things, right? Same things they are looking at, just different perspectives about it. Caleb doesn't deny the fact that this situation, the reality of this situation from a surface level is exactly what they said. Yeah, there are a lot of big people in this land. There are a lot of strong people in this land. Their cities are really fortified, right? This looks awful. This looks like something we can't overcome. But then Caleb says, but their protection has been removed, right? Their protection has been removed, which means it doesn't matter how strong they are. It doesn't matter how great their walls are. They can't win. They can't win this, right? Caleb says, let's go get it. But the people had been impacted. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 23. The things seemed good to me, and I took 12 men from you, from you, one man from each tribe. They turned and went up into the hill country, came to the valley of Eschol, and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, it is a good land that the Lord God is giving us. 
yet you would not go up. So this is after the fact. You would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he's brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. It says there that the people of Israel's hearts melted at these bad reports. Now we said, and when we were talking about Caleb a couple weeks ago, that he had a different heart and a different spirit, which is exactly what Ephesians 1 talks about. That's why his report was different. He brought back a different report based on an enlightened heart. He knew the truth that God was going to give them this land. He trusted that nothing could prevent the Lord from keeping his promise to bring his people into their inheritance. If you go back and read Exodus 15, this is when Moses and the children of Israel have just been delivered from the Red Sea. Moses sings a song about how the people of Canaan are going to be terrified of our God. They're going to be scared. We're going to take the land because God's giving it to us. It's interesting, you read in Deuteronomy, that it says the people of Israel's hearts melted. I don't know if you caught it, but when we were reading um, the story of Rahab, what does Rahab say? She, she confesses to the spies. She says, people are melting before you, right? Your God is giving the land to you. You're, you're melting people, right? You are defeating people already. She says, our hearts have melted because we're terrified of your God. So you've got God saying, hey, I'm going to give you the land. The people's hearts are melted over here. They're scared to death. And yet the children of Israel are like, we're scared to death too. We're not going to go in. Our hearts are melty. You got like, everybody's like melting, right? Like everybody's like, no, we're scared. We're melting. And they're like, no, we're scared. We're melting. And God's like, I'm giving you the land. Go take it, right? Go take it. And Caleb's the only one that sees it. Caleb's the only one that has this enlightened mindset to see it. To avoid the world overwhelming us, we must see that what we see physically is not the full reality, right? We've talked about what it means to have this enlightened heart, to see past our circumstances and to see God's promises. And one of the key things to help us in this journey as we grow in our faith is to avoid people, to avoid people that would contribute to our fear, right? You read in Deuteronomy chapter 20. This is something that uh, God had given to the nation of Israel as a warning before going into battle. It was basically a checkpoint. Like, don't, don't go into battle if these things are true about you. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8, before you go into battle, the officer shall speak further to the people, to the soldiers, and say, is there any man who's fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. The generals are supposed to tell the soldiers, hey, if you're scared, don't go into battle. Because what we don't need is to be in the middle of battle and for your fear to come out and it make other people scared, right? Just, just go ahead and go back home, right? Go ahead and go back home. We need to be careful as we seek to grow in our faith that we surround ourselves with people who can help speak into our life, who have enlightened hearts to see past circumstances and to see promises, right? Because if we surround ourselves with people who don't, we're oftentimes going to be fearful and melt in our circumstances, right? Because people in our life are going to be fearful with us, right? Caleb saw past his circumstances and saw these past promises and said, God is giving it to us. The application, we need to focus on the promises of God and allow them to shape the way we process our circumstances. Focus on the promises of God and allow them to shape the way we process our circumstances. Caleb's like, oh, you got that right. I'm seeing the exact same thing, right? Big, strong, scary men in big, strong, uh, scary cities with big, strong walls. But what I see is that their protection's gone. It's gone, and God's going to give it to us. Next person I want to show you is Abraham. Abraham, we talked about Abraham in our uh, James 2 study as well with D group. His principle is that impossible feats are expected. Impossible feats are expected by the enlightened heart. We go back to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 20. So do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
James says, let me show you Abraham's works. And he references the, the story of Isaac, right? What we know from Scripture, though, is that way back in Genesis 15, well before he offers Isaac on the altar, it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Romans 4, 3 talks about this as well. His faith and his salvation came well before he was called to offer up Isaac. But when the time came for him to offer up Isaac, because he has faith in God, his actions came forth, right? His works came forth and he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. He believed God and his belief put him into practice. But I love what Hebrews eleven nineteen says. Because sometimes we paint this picture that, man, Abraham was probably so scared about offering Isaac and that, you know, he was going to lose his boy that he'd been waiting for for so long, right? But what we see, the depth of Abraham's faith is found in Hebrews 11, verse 9. Let me see, um, 19, sorry, Hebrews eleven nineteen. 19. It says, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Believed that Isaac was the offspring that God had promised to him, and then considered that God was able to raise him from the dead if necessary. So Abraham, Abraham approaches the sacrifice of Isaac and says, okay, God's asked me for Isaac. I'm going to sacrifice him on the altar, but I'm not losing him because God promised, promised something here. God promised that Isaac was the chosen one, so Isaac can't stay dead. And Hebrews says that Abraham believed in his heart. If necessary, God was going to raise him from the dead and give him back to him because God had obligated himself to do so. God had promised that Isaac was the one, right? So as, as believers with enlightened hearts, we believe impossible feats, things that don't make sense from an earthly standpoint, things that don't make sense to us can be accomplished because of God's power. And Paul says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you to have enlightened hearts to see this power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that enthroned him to where he is ruling and reigning right now. That same power is available to you as believers. So the application for Abraham, we need to believe God is capable of the impossible and expect him to work miraculously on our behalf. We need to believe God is capable of the impossible and expect him to work miraculously on our behalf. For those of you that are taking notes as you're writing, think about this question. When's the last time that you would say something was done in your life or you witnessed something in your life that unequivocally should be given to God as the credit because there's no other way that could have happened? Think about that for a second. When's the last time something happened to you in your life or you observed something happening in somebody else's life where without a shadow of a doubt, that is God doing something miraculous? Sometimes we don't expect it. And sometimes we just might miss it. We might not attribute it because we don't spend time focusing on the fact that, hey, my God has great power and things that should be impossible aren't. And I was so, and this may not sound like an impossible feat, but man, I was so encouraged by God's power this weekend when I was talking to um, Tiffany Long. So those of you that don't know Adam and Tiffany, Adam and Tiffany were part of our initial uh, church planting group when we started 10 years ago. Um, and then God worked in their life, moved in their life, worked out some situation where they moved to Snowbird last not this past Christmas, but the Christmas before that. So they've been living up there, serving up there. They're both full-time up there at Snowbird. Two kids, Connor had gone before and had worked there. He's still up there living. And then Juju went with them. Some of you know Juju from, from way back when, when she was uh, basically in our kids' class. Um, Juju was always a girl. And I don't know if Juju will ever listen to this, but um, <laughs> Juju, uh, she would say this. Juju was always a girl that very shy, very unsure of herself, um, lacked confidence, uh, didn't always talk back to you when you tried to engage with her, right? It was just very much uh, reclusive and, you know, showed up with her family, left with her family. Um, was hard to engage sometimes with conversation. And we had ladies in our church that poured into her, invested in her, right? Um, but she's the type of girl that you're like, man, like, I, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to engage with her. I don't know how to get her to talk with me. God's been growing her and maturing her. And I was, I was stunned. I was stunned as Tiffany was telling me about a recent event where she's doing some dual enrollment classes at the local college. 
and the gospel was challenged in her class, and a particular individual in his 40s was particularly antagonistic against the gospel. And Tiffany said, you won't believe this. But Tiffany got, or Juju got with that guy after class and called me when she finished sharing the gospel with him. And I'm hearing that, and I'm like, that's, that's not the same girl that I remember when we first started. And that doesn't necessarily ring true as though Abraham's like, I believe that Isaac can come back from the dead. But to believe that a girl who's shy and unsure of herself can reach a point where she's sharing the gospel with an adult man and not scared of it, not fearful of it, man, that's a testimony to the work of God and the the work of the gospel in her life where she's like, I'm all in on this, even though it might be scary and uncomfortable, I believe this. And if somebody's going to come up against it, I'm not going to back down from it. Right? As believers, we can, we can expect the impossible to happen. But next, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego remind us that we can be content when we're expecting the impossible not to happen. That probable results can be accepted by us. You remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They're taken from Israel and they're exiled to Babylon. What's crazy, though, is in Isaiah 43, the prophet Isaiah is talking about this before it happens. It says, God's going to take you away to Babylon. Tells Israel in advance, but look what it says. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. This was written before they go. This was probably a passage that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have known as Jewish boys, would have been exposed to this verse that says, when you walk through fire, you won't be burned. The flame will not consume you. You fast forward and you know that... um, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in uh, Daniel chapter 2. He reacts to that dream and builds this golden statue in Daniel chapter 3 and tells everybody you gotta, uh, you got to bow down to it, right? you got to worship it. When the music plays, you worship this God. It's me, right? I'm your God. So this, this image is set up. He tells everybody to worship it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to, right? They won't bow down to it. They won't submit themselves to it. And then they're identified as people who are rebelling. And they have a conversation with Nebuchadnezzar. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn over to Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar's angry. He tells them that they will worship it. They will bow down to it. And it says in verse 15, If you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Listen to this question. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Like what God could possibly deliver you? What's crazy is that you back up into chapter 2, And when Daniel tells him his dream and the interpretation, he's like, man, there's no other God like your God. And he's forgotten it. He's forgotten it by this point. He says, what God could possibly save you from my hands? Look what verse 16 says. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. But if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. Why would they say that? Because Isaiah 43 says that. Right? Isaiah 43 says he can save from a burning fire. They said, he's able to deliver us, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Their faith is in Yahweh's ability to deliver them. Their faith is in Yahweh's will over their safety, though. Right? Catch what they say, catch what they say there. He's able to deliver us from the fire. He will deliver us from your hand, right? So there was one thing that they said, we know this is happening, no doubt. This other thing, we know it could happen. We're not sure if it will or it won't. But even if it doesn't, it doesn't change our faith. We will walk through this fire. We will go to the fire if necessary. We will not submit to you. He will deliver us from your hand, right? He may deliver us from the fire because he certainly can. But even if he chooses not to, Right? So as we labor through our life, can God heal people from cancer? Absolutely. 
can God people heal people from COVID? Absolutely, and he does a lot of the time, right? Our faith isn't in God doing those things, though. He's capable of it, but what our assurance comes from is that he delivers us not just from what can harm our body, but from what can harm our soul, right? So what they're saying here is that, look, he can save us from the fire, but what we know he will do is save us from your hand. You are not in control of us. You do not control our destiny. You think our destiny is this fiery furnace, and that may be a temporary holding spot for us. He will deliver us from your hand, right? And they're content with whatever happens, right? They acknowledge his power. They acknowledge his will. They acknowledge he can save them. They acknowledge that he will save them from his hand, and they're good with however that looks, however that works out. Their faith is rooted not in circumstances, but in the nature of their God. Now think about Stephen. Stephen Stephen loves Jesus just as much as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego love God. And God doesn't spare Stephen, right? You look in the book of Acts, Stephen's one of the first martyrs recorded for us. He stands there believing in Jesus, and he's stoned to death, and God doesn't save him. He delivers him from the hand of the Pharisees, though, because Stephen goes to be with Jesus in heaven. He sees Jesus standing in heaven as he's dying, right? Two groups of people, Stephen, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, both of them are confessing allegiance to God. Both of them have their lives threatened. God saves one and doesn't save the other. But their faith isn't shaken by the results. My question to you would be, do you trust the way he defines good for you? We talk all the time about how God promises good to his children, but we have to quantify that and say, he knows what is good for us best. Look what this um, quote says. Biblical saving faith, faith authored by Jesus says, whatever my God ordains is right. How do we know what's good for us? How do we know what's right for us? Whatever God is allowing to happen to us is. Those are the things that we can trust are right and good for us. Brian Chappelle says, true faith simply acknowledges that God knows and does what is best. If he doesn't save them from the fire, he will be in the fire with them regardless. I was listening to a sermon on this, and I, I, was, I was shown something by the Holy Spirit as I was processing through that I hadn't seen before. Because you think about this story. Nebuchadnezzar demands worship, demands people submit to him, and the people that don't are told, get to the fiery furnace. And I was, I was gripped by the fact that God says the same thing, right? God demands worship, demands that we submit to him, and what do we do? We stand. We say, I ain't doing that. We stand. And God has said, to the fiery furnace you will go. But if you read the account with Nebuchadnezzar, it says that he's immediately furious, immediately reacts, and says, get it hotter than it ever has been before. Right? He reacts to the rebellion and says, make it hotter. I'm going to burn them. What does our God do? We stand he doesn't say make it hotter. He says, I'll go for you, right? He says, I'll go take the wrath for you. I'll send my son for you. In your rebellion, in you standing, in your sin, I'm gonna make provision. He's different than Nebuchadnezzar, right? He demands worship. And then when we rebel, he demands, he demands that worship and gives us the ability to worship him by sending his son. And I was, I, was so, I was so encouraged by that. That's how we can trust that God's going to carry us through the fire because he loves us enough to save us from it. The application for us is we need to meditate on God's purposes, his glory and our good. Those are God's purposes in everything, his glory and our good. And we need to be content with how both look for our story. Your life's going to look different than other people in this church. God's going to do things for you and not do it for others. He's going to do things for you that he doesn't do for others. And we can be content knowing that God has made promises and it supersedes our circumstances. And we can expect impossible feats to be accomplished by him, but when probable results are presented to us, we can accept and be content knowing that he knows what's good and best for us. The last one as we close is Daniel. Daniel reminds us that an enlightened heart sees pressures and problems, and instead of freaking out about them, it produces prudence and prayer. So you back up to Daniel chapter 2, that story I've been referencing already. Right? Nebuchadnezzar has this crazy dream, and he can't remember the dream. He just knows that he really hated it. I had a dream like this last night. I couldn't remember what I dreamed about. I didn't like the dream, and I tried to remember what it was, and, and I couldn't. Right? 
Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to call some people in here, and if you can't tell me the dream and what it means, I'll just kill you. And so he brings these wise men in, and the wise men are like, look, tell us the dream, and we'll come up with an interpretation. I mean, we'll make something up if we need to, right? Just tell us what the dream is. Nebuchadnezzar's like, I'm not going to be tricked by that. Like, anybody could make up an interpretation. I want you to tell me the dream and the interpretation. And what do they say? Look what it says in, um, uh, let's see, Daniel chapter 2, verse 11. The thing that the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So they're like, we don't know this. The only, people that, the only person that could do this would be a god. And there's no expression or desire from the people to go ask their gods. It just says the only, only the gods could do this, and they don't dwell in flesh, so we don't even know. Nebuchadnezzar gets angry, says, I'm going to kill everybody. And so they come find Daniel and his people. Verse 13, so the decree went out. The wise men were about to be killed. They sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Verse 14, then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. His reaction to this circumstance, this plummeting circumstance where he's going to be killed, it says that he reacts with prudence and discretion. That word prudence means the ability to govern and discipline oneself by the use of reason. I would say that Daniel learned how to, how to control himself, how to discipline himself by the use of God's word. Right? Prudence. He responds with prudence and discretion. What does he tell other people? He says, hey, let me go ask my God for this information. Let me go ask my God for this information. He prays, he pauses, and he, and he praises God and, and, and prays to God for this information, and God grants it to him. God gives it to him. He doesn't complain or whine about his circumstances. He doesn't say this is unfair. He just he responds with prudence and says, let me ask my God. Let me ask my God for this information. Look what he says in chapter 26 when he comes back to talk to Nebuchadnezzar. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. He says the exact same thing as those wise men. He says, no man can do this. Verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. He tells him the dream and the interpretation, right? The key part of this story, though, is that Daniel doesn't freak out. He doesn't, he doesn't panic, right? His faith drives him that when a circumstance looks awful, right, when you're peering into a promised land and you see giants and fortified cities, Daniel responds with prudence and discretion. He says, I'm going to pray to my God. I'm going to go to my God and pray about it. So our application then would be, rather than giving in to fear, worry, and anxiety about our circumstances, we need to react in faith with prayer as the immediate step for seeking relief, guidance, and help. Rahab reminds us that we need to hear God's word and allow it to impact our emotions, belief, and action. We need to seek to know God more so that those emotions and actions and behaviors can be impacted. Caleb tells us past promises supersede present circumstances. We need to focus on those promises and allow them to shape the way we process our circumstances. Abraham reminds us impossible feats can be expected. Believe that God is capable of the impossible. Expect him to work miraculously on our behalf. But when he doesn't, to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to accept what's most probable going to happen. They're probably thinking, we're probably going to die here. We're probably going to die. And we're okay with that. We're okay with that because we're not going to bow down to this king. We need to meditate on God's purposes. Be content with how both look for our story. Be thankful when he does deliver us. And then Daniel, pressures and problems. When we see this in our own life, when circumstances weigh heavy on us, we don't freak out, we don't whine, we don't complain, we don't panic. We react with prudence and discretion by going to God in prayer for these things, expecting him to do the impossible. We don't give in to fear, worry, and anxiety. We react with prayer. I want to close with this verse, 2 Samuel chapter 7. This was a verse that was read to us at our men's retreat this week as we were studying the life of David. It jumped out to me in light of all this stuff that I've been learning and studying on my own. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 22. This is a prayer of David. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you 
and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. David's saying, man, I've heard a lot about you. And what I continue to see in my life is the very things that I've heard. I've heard all about you and I'm seeing you in my own personal life. I'm seeing these things to be true. My prayer for you as your pastor is that your heart would be enlightened in the same way that it was enlightened in the hearts of these individuals in Scripture, echoing the same prayer that Paul had for his church, that your hearts would be enlightened to see God in this way, that there is none like him. The things that you've heard, you see them acting out in your own life. You process your circumstances this way to see that there is no God besides the God we worship. Let's pray together. God, we love you and thank you for your goodness and your grace and mercy to us. We thank you that when we, when we chose not to worship you, when we sinned and rebelled against you, instead of making the fiery furnace hotter, you sent your son Jesus so we could be spared from it. And God, we trust today that when fires and waters come our way, we're not going to drown and we're not going to burn. Even if we experience trials and difficulties in this life, which you've promised we will, we can say like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we will be delivered from the hand of this world. Even if we, even if we die in it laboring for you, we will be spared. Because God, we want to fear not what can harm our body, but what could harm body and soul. And God, we have entrusted our souls to you. Just like Rahab, we know what you're doing. We see it in your word. You've declared it to us. This is where history is headed. And God, we're confessing and and, and saying, we want to go with you. We want to be a part of it. And we're praising you that you have called us and adopted us into that. God, we're praying that you would continue to enlighten our hearts, that we would see the things that we're learning in Scripture not just on these pages, but in our life, that we'd process our circumstances accordingly, that your word would impact us, impact our emotions, impact our beliefs and our actions to where we would believe in the impossible and we'd be content with the probable. We'd be driven to pray to you when problems and challenges come our way. God, increase our enlightenment to see you more and more in our daily life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.